Welcome to Energy Radio. This is episode 42. And uh, on this episode, I'm joined by my newest co-host, Lisa Barber. Lisa, welcome to your first podcast of Energy Radio as a co-host. Thank you very much, Matt. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's, uh, this has kind of in some ways been your brainchild and you've been uh, behind the scenes working uh, a bunch of uh, guests onto the show and, and really developing our brand. And so it's fun to have you um, in front of the mic, I guess, or behind the mic. I don't know what the right term is. So um, <laughs> hopefully we'll uh, we'll figure this out as we go. And uh, anything, uh, anything, why don't I ask you to introduce our next guest then? Uh, yeah, as we start, sure. Put no you on the spot. Well, I'm excited actually to introduce our, our next guest because it's... Um, it, it was an, it was uh, easy to get him on, actually, <laughs> a little bit easier than uh, some of the other guests that I have to try and get on. So, yeah, um, Steve Quinlan, it's great to, to have you on board here on the podcast. Um, Steve is our uh, electrical um, department head, and uh, yeah, it's great to have you on, Steve. How are you doing today? Good. Thanks so much for having me. I've uh, been a longtime listener, so it's uh, exciting to uh, to actually be able to join. Awesome. And uh, longtime listener and longtime CEM team member, um, longer than I think most. Um, Steve, talk to us about, you know, in, in uh, from a high level, your tenure with uh, CEM, illustrious as it has been. Yeah, it'll be um, uh, it'll be 14 years this June. So um, wow. it's been uh, it's been quite a wild ride uh, over those years. Um Came to CEM right out of university, the first and only job I applied to in my final year of uh, university. Wow! And uh, <laughs> what, what did you? I, I'm dying to know. Like, was it a posting? Like, were, were you? Was did somebody write up? Like, this is we're talking. So, 14 years ago, we're talking CEM, still a very new company. Like, was it a posting? You're like, hey, that looks cool, or was it? You know, it was just a last ditch effort, and and I'll take what I can get, kind of thing. Um, I was very looking at the co-op students now and how proactive they are at getting uh, jobs lined up. Um, it looks very lax the way I kind of did it. I was just casually browsing the uh, McMaster job posting site and saw, oh, that looks interesting. And uh, so, so very casually applied and uh, and that was it. So um was your yeah. first, presumably your first interview was obviously with with Martin. Was he hard on you? <laughs> uh, no, not at all. Um, I think it went quite well, except I, I didn't realize there are so many Ontario streets um, coming oh. down Niagara Way. So <laughs> it was a bit of a panic getting there on time because I took the wrong exit a couple times. Um, yeah, there's, there's, isn't there like, there's one in Grimsby, there's one coming from Hamilton, there's one in Grimsby, one in Beamsville, and then one, the, the one you were supposed to take was the one in St. Catharines, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. At the time, the uh, CEM office was on his Scott Street, just off of Ontario Street. And um, so I was a, a little bit late for the interview, but other than that, I think it went quite well. Um, and when you, and when you joined, I mean, the firm was pretty small at the time, right? It was. So um, they hired one mechanical engineering grad and one electrical engineering grad at the time. Those were the only kind of two uh, engineers that were joining uh, kind of a younger age. So uh, so I was one of the two. I think it was around 10 people, uh, including myself and uh, and Craig Baker. So what did those what did those early years 
look like in terms of, you know, what, what kind of work were you working on? You know, who were you working you know, with and in, in the firm? Um, did you, did you regret your decision? You know, like <laughs> talk to us about those early years. No, absolutely not. But I, I did feel, um, that I had, um, a big step to do in terms of learning. Um, mm. um, so I, I was really dedicated to kind of studying everything I could and getting up to speed because I didn't feel I was fully qualified for the job. I just, uh, you know, coming out of university and um, being one of the few electrical um, people at uh, the company at the time. So it was, it was really exciting. But um, yeah, I, I put in a lot of effort to kind of get up to speed as quickly as I could. Uh, and, uh, you know, jump into the deep end, as uh, as Martin so often says. But um, it was a bit ironic because in my first year of university, we took a, uh, a drafting course and uh, we all had our rolling rulers and things like that. And I thought, I'm doing computer and electrical engineering. I'm never going to need this again. So I immediately sold all of that stuff. And uh, my first day on the job, I was handed an AutoCAD manual and uh, and told to say, <laughs> here, figure out AutoCAD and uh, and create drawings for us. So um, so it really uh, came full circle in that sense. But it was fun. Yeah. So I was, uh, was learning AutoCAD and, and uh, creating drawings. Um, one of the stories that I tell for people was that at the time, our uh, our main electrical engineer, was working outside of the office so he would actually send fax fax pages of markups that he wanted me to do and um, they'd all be labeled to put together as a puzzle because you only get one eight and a half by eleven sheet mm -hmm. at a time so i'd get maybe 12 of these sheets all lettered um, with arrows pointing how they all piece together i'd go in the conference room and place all these pages these faxes and then I and then I would uh, figure out uh, what it was that I had to uh, put up into AutoCAD. So um, wow. yeah, quite quite a different time <laughs> compared to these days. So, so, so you, you were, go ahead, Lisa. Oh no, I was gonna say so. So you've obviously seen though, you know, a, a lot of changes, you know, throughout the years, Steve. What what's been the most exciting for you, out of curiosity? I I think if anything's been consistent, it's been change. Um, just you know, really uh, tons of incremental changes and big changes as well. You know, moving into uh, the new head office that we're, we're still currently in there and all the renovations that have happened there. I think my desk has changed around maybe hmm. eight or 10 times over the 14 years, uh, including now working from home. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, lots of, lots of uh, people coming and going. Uh, I've learned so much from... A uh, number of people that I was fortunate enough to have as mentors over that period, and um, yeah, it's it's just been a great ride, and, and seeing all the um, the growth that CEM has had over that time and and development, and being able to contribute to that, I think has uh, really been a great uh, aspect of my career that I've really enjoyed. What about the change in the the nature or the types or the size of the projects? I mean. We've had early on, I don't know how much we were doing, and, and now I know how much we're doing, but talk to us about a bit of that progression over your 14-year tenure here. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, the early days, I was working on some small biogas projects and um, you know, 250 kilowatt jobs, and um, that was that was a really good way to learn, I think. Um, and uh, and now we're working on 30, 60 megawatt projects. Um, you know, main power sources for facilities. It's uh, it's it's quite a quite a difference in um, in the scale and scope of of what we're involved in compared to those early days. But um, yeah, it's 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 really exciting to be able to see that development and and seeing not just myself and my own growth, but being able to lead a team of people who are developing and and um, bringing people on who have much more experience and expertise. That, than I have and being able to learn from them. Um, it's just fantastic. So it's really exciting. It's an exciting time um, as always in uh, CEM's history. And, and talk to us, Steve, about the nature of the electrical engineering that you and, and now your team do in terms of, you know, why it's so specific. I think we, you know, a lot of us talk about electrical engineering. It's a big, wide field, just like mechanical is a big, wide field. But talk to us about, you know, the specific kind of vertical, to use a, a cliche term, but the specific focus that you and your team uh, fit and personally, in my own uh, slightly biased opinion, do better than, you know, anybody in, in Canada, for that matter, and, and probably, you know, up top five in North America in terms of the field. But talk to us about what is that field? What's, what makes it different than other fields? What is it that you folks do day in and day out uh, that you do so well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's, it's definitely in my specialty is um, protection and control systems for embedded generation, grid connected, um, and particularly the component of that that involves integration with the utility and protection from the utility system. Um, I think that's something that we've really honed our skills on because we've done it so much. That's really been our focus. Um, just about all of our projects have been grid connected generation. There's lots of complexities that come along with that. You have multiple sources of fault current and uh, multiple uh, means of failure that you have to be able to protect against. And also just that coordination piece with an external party with, uh, you know, working with the utility and building a good relationship with them. So you're speaking the same language and, uh, and coming out at the end of the day with the best outcome for the customer. Um, I think we've really developed a lot on that aspects of it. I think that's where we've really learned a lot. And uh, it's it's something that we really bring to the table that uh, I think is a bit rare because we've had so much experience. I, I think we've pretty much worked with every utility in Ontario at this point. I, I don't know if there's many left that we haven't quite had a project with or at least um, you know, had applications with for potential projects and uh, a number out west as well. So um, we've definitely got quite a repertoire of uh, relationships with uh, utilities over the years. And and what I mean, why where does that come into into a benefit for the project and ultimately, you know, for the client? Like, you know, that's it's great experience in a really narrow 
but where does that allow us to serve our clients differently than or, or, or you know, serve the projects and help deliver better projects? Where are some of the areas where you, you guys are keeping projects from kind of falling off the rails? For sure. Well, um, a lot of times we're working with utilities that don't have a lot of embedded generation or they don't have a lot of experience with it. Um, so we're actually guiding the utility for how the utility interconnection process works. Um, and uh, it takes a lot of patience, but if we're able to show them that we have the expertise, we've we've done this, we have the data to be able to back up what we're saying, um, I, I think that really helps keep projects on track. Um, it's so important, especially schedule-wise, to get everything sorted out with the utility um, early on and uh, make sure that all of their requirements are being met um, well in advance. Because once you get into a commissioning stage, um, making changes at that time has a very big cost to it, both in schedule and you know, mm -hmm. going back to the drawing board on something once it's been built is is just out of the question. So um yeah so being able to uh, guide the utility and provide evidence and bring to the table um from our expertise and say you know this is why we we're doing it this way and this is why we think uh this will be uh you know meeting all of your requirements um really helps avoid those issues at the back end of the project mm. steve can we talk a little bit more about that um you know, when I when I go to see a client and, you know, we start talking about the full cost of a project, engineering is such a small part of the overall project, but it really plays a big role in terms of limiting the overall cost exposure or risks down the road. Can you talk about the importance of, you know, uh, getting an engineer involved early in the project and um, and kind of the overall benefits that that has to the to the to cost long term in the project? Yeah, absolutely. Um, just yeah, on that um, category of utility um, involvement, a lot of times there's metering, there's isolation requirements, there's SCADA that they need, and there's so many um, so many cost implications to that. That um, you know, if you need to put more switchgear out there, um, it's not so easy to just make that change later on. You have to know upfront and and even when you're looking at the feasibility stage, you need to know what those costs are. You, you don't want surprises to come later. So e even if we're just doing a preliminary study, having that experience to be able to say, okay, well, maybe this utility doesn't necessarily have that requirement right now, but they may change their mind by the time this project you know, goes ahead. So we need to prepare and um, have enough costs built in um, to the pro forma that we know that uh, we're, we're well protected in case uh, those changes come in. And, and if we need additional switch gear and things like that, we've accounted for that cost. I think, you know, I often think about former, uh, I think it was the Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, he used to talk about known knowns and unknown unknowns. And and this these these types of costs, I think, for, for those who are not familiar with doing embedded generation, you know, for those uh, who, who are, you know, making a product and uh, and don't do this all the time, 
those are unknown unknowns. They, they just don't know they exist, right? And so, at least for us, they're they're known unknowns. You know, we, we, we know that they're probably there. We don't know, you know, if it's a six-figure bill or a seven-figure bill, but at least we know that there might be skeletons in that yeah. closet. And uh, and we know we know where to look, right? So mm-hmm. it's it's a, it's a valuable skill that that experience is really where Steve's team, I think, can contribute. And Steve, just kind of maybe even to back up a little bit, why did you actually choose to get into the field of engineering? Out of curiosity, I'm I'm curious to to hear that. Maybe our listeners are as well. Yeah, that's a great question. How how far back do you want me to go? Go 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 <laughs> as far back as you like. I'd love to hear it all. Yeah, well, I I think it was grade nine. Uh, where I chose to go into engineering um, with one of those, uh, uh, you know, career um, survey things or something like that. Mm-hmm. I was uh, I liked computers and I liked math and um, and it said do engineering. Okay, um, I didn't really have any um, uh, role models in engineering at the time, and um, but uh, so I, I kind of followed that path and. Um, yeah, when I went to university, I was really interested in uh, computer engineering at the time. Um, and uh, so I went that path. And then it wasn't until I think uh, third or fourth year when I started having some exposure to consulting and um, electrical engineering, power system engineering. Um, I, I worked a co-op stint at IESO. And that's when I really got very interested in the power grid and uh, how that all works and, you know, the big picture stuff uh, beyond just uh, working on uh, microcontrollers and programming. So that started to be a lot more interesting to me. And um, work having the uh, management side of my degree because I did the uh, the uh, engineering and management program at Mac, similar to uh, Matt and Martin. Um, it introduced me to the the uh, consulting side that relates to uh, you know the commercial implications of engineering, feasibility studies, and things like that. So I did some uh, consulting projects as part of the management side of my degree. Um, so I was really interested in going into consulting. Uh, I think that's really, uh, you know, the only thing that really interests me is, uh, is that area and, the, you know, the business side of it as well as the technical side and that where those two meet, I think is what really excites me. So, um, that's kind of what led me to look at, uh, mm. engineering and, uh, consulting specifically in electrical and so when I saw that job posting for CEM, I was like, oh, this is really cool. It's it's great. And, and it also helped that it was uh, based in St. Catharines because uh, me being a Hamilton boy, I didn't really want to go the GTA uh, direction. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, this is the opposite opposite way. I think I can I think I can manage that. So, um, yeah. And for. I'm sure we have a, a lot of listeners who are in uh, in university still. I I don't know what the stats are lately, but I'm sure many people in university listen to the Energy Radio podcast and uh, are thinking about their careers. Um, and uh, Steve, uh, you know, the electrical engineering field is wide. And my my guess, not knowing the field, is that you know early early in somebody's tenure when they're trying to figure out what kind of electrical engineer they want to be. 
Uh, I'm not so sure that power engineer really rises to the top. I mean, there are things that are sexier in terms of electronics and, you know, microcomputers and all that stuff that goes over my head. Is it fair to say that this is a field where, you know, it's harder and harder to find, you know, good talent and, and, and talent that has experience and, you know, communicates well and, and can can thrive in, in our is it a is it a shrinking field, uh, perhaps? Um, perhaps. I, I think that I mean, it's always in demand. We're, we're always right. looking for good power engineers. And um so that is definitely a challenge, but um, I do have a lot of hope because, you know, with the co-op students that we've had recently, um, you know, there are um, some young folks out there who are pursuing power and who are really passionate about that field. And so it's really great to see that. And um, so I, I think there's definitely, it's a great career path. Um, there's definitely lots of demand for it. And uh, but it is nice to see that the universities are supporting those fields and especially especially now uh, with the focus on you know, reducing carbon emissions and increasing energy efficiency. Um, I think that that strikes a chord with the new generation of power engineers out there who are looking to make a difference in the world and um, looking for that uh, you know big impact from what uh, what they're working on and what they're doing so i think that's something that we offer to the the new uh, students just uh, coming out of school and steve on on either your right or your left hand i can't remember if you're right or left-handed you wear a ring uh and we have a lot of u.s listeners and i'm sure some of them are aware of the kind of symbolism behind that ring but maybe even for our young listeners who are listening in who want to get into the field of engineering there's the symbolism you know, is really a reminder, I think, around the obligations and the ethics that are associated with engineering. What does that mean to you personally? And, and how does that affect the decisions that you make in an everyday at CEM and for the greater good of, you know, the, the clients and the projects we're working on? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the uh, the engineering ring or iron ring, which uh, is actually stainless steel, um, by the way, but um, a lot more practical, which makes a lot of sense for our engineers. Um, uh, yeah, it, it represents that obligation. And for me, I'm left-handed, actually, uh, as, as with a, a bunch of people, actually, surprising amount at uh, CEM. But um, the idea there is it's on your working hand so that when you're signing your name on your engineering seal, that ring is is first and foremost right in front of your face. So just as that reminder of your obligation uh, to uh, to ethics and, and to public uh, interest. Um, so yeah, that, that means a lot to me. And um, I know there's uh, some people at CEM who've uh, come from US schools and have been able to get their iron ring here in Canada. Uh, after after graduation mm. um, to just kind of be you know part of that uh, club and and have that reminder of uh, of our obligation to the public uh, that's really important to me so I, I've been involved with the the professional engineers Ontario uh, the local chapter for a while and um, and I always encourage all of our uh, new engineers or new engineering grads specifically to follow that uh, process to getting licensed and 
what are the steps to get there and, and how do we uh, mm-hmm. encourage their development so that they can get it to a stage where they get that uh, PNG after their name. And what I love about, you know, that obligation of an engineer is, you know, I, I think often we think about it when we first get exposed to it, we think about it as a, uh, you know, an obligation to safety. And and obviously it is. And, and there are unfortunate stories where that obligation was not carried. But I think as, as the world continues to develop, and, and I know Steve and I have had some conversations about this, and I, I think Steve, you know, shares my vision on this, is that the obligation goes beyond that. And, and there's a duty to the, the public beyond just safety. There's a duty to to do the right thing in, in everything that we're doing, whether that's, you know, Steve mentioned a lot of our, you know, environmental initiatives, you know, that we have that duty to the public. I mean, w- as we strive for a society for equality, you know, you know, whatever the dynamic, you know, we, we need to strive for equality in what we do. Um, and so it, it's always about, you know, raising the bar and how can we as engineers really drive towards a better society. Um, it's it's a, if you stand back and think about it, which all engineers we should be doing, you know, quite frequently, you, you it's a, it's quite a calling and, and uh, the calling is a key verb there. It's a calling of an engineer. So yeah, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. thanks for your thoughts on that, Steve. <laughs> Steve, I, when I joined CEM about, I guess it's just over four years ago, I was, uh, I was impressed to kind of, or maybe not impressed, intrigued to kind of see how our engineering really affected the lives of other people. You've worked on a project more recently uh, where really the project did just that. Um, you know, it's a cogeneration project. Um, could you unpack that a little bit for us? Um, I know it's in, uh, you know, it's uh, it's a project that's close to your heart that you were really close to. So could could you you unpack that and give us some information on that? Yeah, sure. So um, we just recently finished commissioning um, an eight megawatt CHP project for a critical healthcare facility in Toronto, and um, I, I think the um, really the excitement, especially for um, people uh, joining uh, CEM out of school, um, being able to to see that project at that stage and being built. Um, I mentioned earlier our co-op students. I was able to bring a couple co-op students there to see that project and um, uh, I think that was a a really good experience for them just to see beyond the paper, beyond the screen, what what is this really all about? What are we doing here? Um, So, but yeah, having that uh, project wrapping up after literally 10 years being involved with the project uh, that kind of shocked me when I went back. It, it felt like it's been forever, but uh, it really has been most of my career that we've had this uh, project, uh, you know, in the development stages for mm-hmm. for a while. Um, but uh, yeah, so the the exciting part there is that we're able to improve the resiliency of the hospital campus um, to be able to provide. Um, power in the event that something goes wrong on the grid um, and really be able to continue full operation. Uh, They do have backup generators, uh, as all hospitals do, for some segment of their most critical loads. Um, But there's a lot more that the hospital needs than just their critical loads. There's so many aspects of their operation. There's a lot of staff there. Um, 
you know, a lot of things uh, that um, need power just beyond the absolute most critical. So the cogent that we're putting in there is going to be able to provide almost the full campus with power supply as though it was a normal day and, and everything is uh, A-OK on the grid. Um, in addition to that, uh, it has the ability to ride through interruptions on the grid. Whereas normal backup power, you have to shut everything down until your diesel generators kick in and, and pick up the load uh, 10 seconds later within 10 seconds. Um, now we're able to keep that critical load as though nothing happened. They wouldn't even notice a difference. Um, and then they're able to bring on their diesel generators and, and get even even more of the facility powered up in that way. So uh, it, it's really exciting to do a project that has that kind of direct impact on on public health and public interest and um, you know reliability uh, for a hospital um, is really kind of you know the most exciting part I think of what we do. Yeah. And it's so it's so interesting to stand to stand here on you know in February of 21 and and look back at the last you know 12 months in particular where a large portion of the construction and you know all of the commissioning happened on this critical infrastructure project that is intended to provide significant resiliency improvements and it was all done in the face of uh, COVID right and so you know, even the project team, you know, Steve and others from our team going to site, you know, to do inspections and working around COVID, you know, here's a resilient project team delivering a resilient project. And so, mm -hmm. you know, if we can, if we can work with the hospital to build that during COVID and then, you know, have 20 or 30 years of, of resilient power, you know, it's just, a, it's a really, it's a really cool project. And um, Steve, you can maybe, um, you're going to be speaking in more detail um, about this in an, at an upcoming event, right? Yeah, that's right. The um, IDEA Campus Energy, uh, International District Energy Association, um, has allowed us to give a presentation on this uh, project specifically at the upcoming conference in, uh, I think, next week uh, or week and a half. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited to be able to do that and and talk about that. And uh, I think um, I think it's good to be able to share that experience and some of the lessons we learned um, and some of the uh, you know key success factors that uh, other other campuses, uh, universities, and hospitals can uh, take on for their own coaching projects. Cool. Well, let's maybe. Um Kind of as we as we move to the next phase, let's let's talk a bit about you know the future. I always like to pick people's brains on the on the on the podcast about where they see things going, uh, and uh, so I realize we're putting you on the spot. But you know whether it be in terms of the types of projects that you're seeing, Steve, or you know how you go about your work as you know power engineers as electrical engineers, how you see that changing. You know what excites you? What gets you up in the morning, uh, and and motivates you to to be a leader at CEM and and be a leader as an engineer and looking ahead, you know, to the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think I think a lot of the things that have been discussed on the podcast are, are definitely exciting aspects of our future as CEM and the hydrogen space and 
um, you know, biomass and some of these new technologies, um, I think, are, are just really broadening our experience and the uh, number of possible solutions we can offer. Um, because certain technologies are going to work in one place and not as much in another. Um, so that that does really excite me because it is um, a career of lifelong learning. And for me to be able mm -hmm. to um, even be on the sidelines of that as uh, members of my team are really jumping in and learning these new technologies and uh, coming up with uh, creative ways to make them work at a particular site is uh, is really exciting to me. So, uh, you know, it's it's great that we're able to uh, jump into those new areas and I see some of it starting to starting to bubble up to the surface and we're, we're starting to see you know real projects getting developed and uh, and so there's definitely definitely a, a good future in store in that aspect of it like I said one of the best part of my job is um, developing people and seeing people grow and and learning and and uh, in their careers uh, advancing and uh, you know, building expertise and becoming experts in their field. I, I think it's so exciting to be able to do that and to have projects that allow my team to um, to do that and, and to grow and get more experience in in uh, really cool new spaces is uh, is uh, exciting for me. Sometimes we joke around the office that we're all on scholarship, all on paid for scholarship. You know, we're we're learning so much and we're getting paid to do it. It's, <laughs> it's a pretty cool. Pretty cool opportunity. Um, yeah. So, Lisa, what do you see out there for for Steve's group in terms of, you know, some of the market drivers um, that are, you know, may particularly impact the electrical uh, portion of, of of our business or or you know of the industry as a whole. Yeah. So, I mean, there's there's a lot of movement right now, certainly within you know, the RNG space. And although, you know, you'd think initially that the RNG space doesn't really have a lot to do with electrical engineering. Um, I think the resiliency that, you know, on-site CHP provides is, um, it's it's still a big piece of the puzzle for a lot of clients. And so when you think of something like using, um, you know, uh, anaerobic digestion on-site, using some clients, you know, waste products and and creating that renewable content natural gas and using that on-site with the, on -site with a, an on-site CHP behind the meter, you know, the, the power resiliency, the, um, the ability to kind of forecast what your power prices are going to look like long term. You know, obviously the the CHP piece is a big a big part of what Steve does now, and I don't think that necessarily uh, you know CHP is going away. It just means the fuel type is changing, and that's where we start to get into some really interesting discussions around around RNG, which can consist of, of course, biogas or of uh, you know and hydrogen. Um, so that's certainly a big a big part. Um, otherwise, there's a lot of discussion um, around biomass and using steam turbines with with biomass. Um, so that I think is a, is going to be a, you know, um, hopefully we'll be getting a project that's, uh, related to that in the next year or so, but yeah, that's obviously a, an area that uh, Steve's team would be heavily involved with as well. What about microgrids, Lisa? I'll ask yeah, you first good. and then I, 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 I'm interested in Steve's unvarnished views on microgrids as well, but I'll, I'll ask you first, Lisa, about what you're seeing in the market and, and, you know, it, it being one of the kind of it terms in our yeah, space. Yeah. Well, and we've, we've spoken about this on the, the podcast before, I think, um, 
who was it? Jake Friedman from uh, Schneider. Actually, it was, I think, Green, green uh, Structure. Um, you know, when he was on, he was talking about microgrids and how really it's it's old technology. And we've got several microgrids that are already out there in the field. But, you know, it's a term that everybody's um, that's getting a lot of hype today. So, you know, whether it's the integration of CHP or uh, combined with maybe energy storage or solar, or if it's a peaking power plant that's combined with just solar, um, you know, microgrids is certainly getting a lot of attention. Um, and I'm seeing a lot of uh, attention specifically in the under five megawatt range. But yeah, I think that's a, another big, uh, you know, up and coming technology, so to speak, that uh, we'll see a lot more of within the next year or two. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the point that was made, I think, by Matt in, in that previous podcast was um, a lot of our projects are microgrids. So, you know, we're, we're supplying power to a particular industrial facility or a hospital or a university, and a lot of those facilities love going off grid and just, you know, supply their own their own power and handle their own energy supply and uh, be protected from the uh, the animals and uh, exposure to the power lines outside uh, at the road. Um, so it, it's the most exciting aspect of that, I think, electrically, at least in the protection control side of things, is we know that that works. We know that technology works. It's been proven. Um, how can we extend it out beyond the fence? And can we get more um, of a piece of the city um, as acting as an as a microgrid? And um, I, I think the biggest challenge there is not so much technical, but uh, really in a regulatory sense. And I think um, electrically, it's interesting because the protection gets a lot more complex. You need to be able to detect issues uh, further beyond um the the main facility itself beyond the fence and um and protect against all the different scenarios that you could mm. see out there while still maintaining that reliability so that that's definitely a really interesting space and um you know if we can um, help get some of the regulatory aspects uh, resolved and find creative ways to uh, manage that and still maintain the utilities obligations for liability. Um, we've got some really interesting, uh, you know, projects that can mm. that can develop, and and even some of our clients who have more um, capacity that they can necessarily use at any given time. Um, right now, a lot of our clients are not able to export power to the grid um, based on their agreement, their agreements with the utility, but. Uh, if we could do that, there's a lot more that we can offer to the broader power system mm. as a whole. Um, recognizing that there's some challenges, um, I think there, I think there are solutions around some of those challenges. So, uh, what's really interesting, interesting is the the project that you were mentioning um, earlier in the podcast when you joined CEM. I think it was the 250 kW project, the biomass project. So that I think is actually a sign of what what is to come, mm -hmm. in the sense that you know that's Bayview Flowers, I think, right? Is that right, Steve? Is yeah, that was one of the first projects I worked on. That's right. right. So you've got you know on-site anaerobic digestion. Uh, you're getting you know that gas delivered through a CHP unit. 
Uh, we converted one of the boilers to run on the biogas as well instead of flaring that, that he had the additional gas that was made. And in addition to that, they have solar on the roof. So I, I don't remember if that project can island or not, but uh, so I don't know if it actually fits the true definition of a microgrid. But um, I mean, that's certainly a sign of what's to come, I think, in terms of what future projects are going to start to look like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and even that's a good example of where you can take uh, one project and expand it out and start incrementally adding more features and and more sources of generation. And, and so, yeah, that definitely is something that can work um, for a lot of sites. And what's interesting, I mean, you know, uh, is is the it's it's there's a business layer to that too, right? Like it's it's one thing to look at that and say as as you know, as engineers, how how exciting that is all the technology, and it, and it is, and it's amazing what's what's been done there. But the 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 ownership or the leadership there has been able to leverage that from a green environmental sustainability perspective, and see it drive you know good results on on the on the on the business as well. And so, I think that's something where you know we see the value, but it's often hard to draw that link between the projects that we're doing and and the business mm. um, and driving both you know bottom line and top line on the business. And and I think we're starting to see that as well. Where you know, you have all these stakeholders in the industries and, and share, you know, you have ad- advocates, shareholders, and you have, you know, different banks and different financiers who are who are saying, you know, if you're going to be part of our team, you got to do, you know, environmentally sustainable projects. You have to be, you know, factoring in resiliency. And uh, it's it's starting to, you know, drive more and more exciting and interesting and challenging projects, right? So it's, a, it's an it exciting inter- time. And what's interesting, Matt, is... Um uh, you know, people are starting to incorporate that in their marketing. Uh, unfortunately, our listeners can't see this, but I took a picture the other day of a, my Kettle brand chip bag. And on the back of the bag, they suggest that they're, they're, they're making enough electricity to make 272,000 bags of chips and avoid CO2 emissions by 85 metric tons annually. Like the, people are including it in their, their marketing. And uh, I think, uh, you know, I, I know that even in the case of Bayview, they uh, were awarded a fairly large contract because they actually have that renewable, uh, you know, content associated with uh, with their product. So people are looking for that. And, um, well, Matt, we've heard about it at, uh, you know, some of the IDA conferences where students are even suggesting that they're not going to attend a university unless the university has a sustainability plan in place uh, to reduce GHGs. So uh, we're, we're seeing a lot more of that. Um, it's start, certainly starting to shape, you know, the way that uh, people are looking at uh, climate change and, and just the types of projects that they're interested in in general. Yeah, even the... Uh medical cannabis uh, industry is now producing green green (laughs) (laughs) so yeah it's uh, everybody can jump in on that yeah on on the on the topic of microgrid a number of the clients that we've uh, served in the past who were not able to develop projects because of capacity constraints on the grid um, due to existing uh, renewable generation uh, i always see that on more of a broad scale, that really is a perfectly set up as a microgrid. Um, you know, the local area can be a microgrid. If you take into account the uh, the solar farms, um, you know, why are we unable to generate high, using high efficiency CHP during the periods when the sun isn't shining? Um, 
if we can get around again the regulatory aspects of you know who's producing power and when um, if we could just see that as a microgrid then we'd be able to the te technology is all there that the assets are all there um, we can make better use of the resources that we have uh, and increase efficiency by being able to just implement the technology to communicate between these sites and treat it more as a microgrid rather than uh, one site, two sites, three sites, uh, all independent. So, um, you know, I, I think that's a, an area that's um, less talked about, but um, is definitely, uh, it's out there. It's an, it's an option for the future. Uh, if we can use some of those existing renewable resources uh, more efficiently so that we can allow uh, more efficient generation and uh, be able to communicate between them so that we're making the best uh, use of the resources we have. Um, th that's a really interesting opportunity, I think. Well, what's exciting with, you know, emerging some of these RNG or hydrogen technologies is it now becomes a way where we can link the electrical infrastructure with the gas infrastructure, you know, and you can you can take excess renewables here, make hydrogen, you know, burn that renewable fuel over here where you're load constrained. You know, we're, we're working on some projects that way now. And so it's becoming more and more, you know, connected. And, and to Steve's point, you know, those, those gas assets are in the ground. Those protection and control assets are there already. It's just a matter of, you know, is there a policy will and is there a vision to, to, to make that happen? So mm -hmm. um, it's going to be uh, as CEM celebrates its uh, 20, 20 year anniversary, the next 20 years are going to be pretty exciting. So thank you both for this, uh, Steve, a special thank you to you uh, for giving of your time as a very uh, busy uh, lead in our firm. Uh, appreciate it. Appreciate you sharing not only your, your history at CEM and what you've worked on recently, but also um your your vision and your philosophy for for technical stuff for people stuff and for the industry as a whole we uh, really appreciate you joining the podcast today yeah thanks yeah. so much for having me this has been really fun thanks so much steve and it was uh i appreciate the fact that it was easy to get you on so thank you again <laughs> <laughs> you have access to my calendar so uh, yes i did no <laughs> that's right and uh thank you lisa for uh, joining uh, will you come back again as co-host or do i, I hog I the mic certainly will yeah this was a lot of fun um and uh yeah i'd love to do this with uh with some of the other guests that we have coming on excellent yeah i think our uh our next guests are with uh, AB Energy, right? That'll be our next uh, yes, podcast to, to queue that up. So right. we'll be talking about uh, some of the new technology they have uh, coming down the pipe. So stay tuned for that. On behalf of uh, Lisa and Steve and uh, our man behind the glass, Mark Charbonneau, my name is Matt Lensink, and you've listened to episode 42 of Energy Radio. And until we talk again, uh, stay safe and have fun.